Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this evening is an enormous privilege for me. Um, our guest is quite simply to me, musical royalty. Um, I came of age, as in my musical learning, listening to her beautiful voice. Um, through her artistry, I deepened my appreciation of composers like Bach and Handel and Elgar and Berlioz and, of course, Gustav Mahler, with whom she had such an affinity. If only Mahler could have heard her Rupert Lieder and Dustied von der Erde. I don't know who said it. It might even have been me, but um, greatness is so easy to recognize, but so hard to define. And I use the word great very, very sparingly um, and with great caution. But I use it this evening to describe our guest, ladies and gentlemen, Dame Janet Baker. In preparing this, I've, I've had so many flashbacks to those occasions when I was a member of your audience. Um, one of the flashbacks I had was rather more recent. I was on a prose edition of the Radio 4 musical quiz, Counterpoint, with Humphrey Burton and Humphrey Carpenter. And one of my buzzer questions was, who is this singer? And I hit the buzzer, I think, on the second note. Um, and I said, well, that's easy. And all the great ones are instantly recognizable. And I just wondered, were you aware of the uniqueness of your voice, Jen? Listening to my own recordings, which I rarely do, uh, it surprises me a great deal. Because sometimes I, I don't recognize myself. Um, I think one recognizes good singing. That, that's, that's always inspirational. Um, the actual voice itself sometimes escapes me. I was in the car the other day listening to uh, a singer and thinking, this is really superb. I should have known who it was, but I didn't and was uh, fascinated to learn a few seconds later that it was Margaret Price uh -huh. and Geoffrey Parsons. <laughs> but one recognized the quality. Yes. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think it's a mark of, of, uh, of good performance when you, when you realize that this is quality no matter who it is. Mm. And you were, but as your career moved on, people must have been saying to you, you know, you're unmistakable, that you're one of a kind. A lot, a lot of people used to say, oh, you remind me of Kathleen Ferrier, which I, <laughs> I was a great compliment. Uh, it, it was meant as a great compliment, and I took it as that. But uh, there was nothing about either her voice or mine which was comparable in the sense Absolutely. Of, of sound. Absolutely. Um, well, it all began in Hatfield, South Yorkshire, where, as far as I can make out, um, the only music in your early life was your father, who was a member of a male voice choir. He was an engineer, wasn't he? Yes. Um, was there no other music in the home? Or? Um, I used to talk to Fischer Diska about this, and we both have the same uh, beginning to music in our families, which was church music. 
Um, my grandmother, I remember, had one of those harmoniums in her parlor that you, you press with your feet and with great energy and gusto. And whenever we went to see her, although I couldn't play, um, I, I used to, was magnetized towards this terrible old instrument. Uh, somehow or other, right? yes, you know, I just, I just wanted to make a noise on it. Yes, yes, so, but yes. as regards um, anybody playing an instrument or having having any experience of uh, a chamber music, no, not at all. What caught your ear as a young woman? What were the what was the music that that, that inspired you? Bach. Yes, uh, being in the church choir and singing um, uh, a hymn which was a chorale tune. And uh, immediately, my, the, the hair stood up on the back of my neck, and I, I realized this was the real stuff. Uh, I recognized, again, a quality that an awful lot of hymn, hymn tunes that we sang in church did not have. Uh, but this uh, raising of the hair on the back of one's neck is familiar, I think, to us all, isn't it? that uh, some things go very deep yes. and, and are instantly recognizable. And did you, when your voice started to emerge, as presumably you were aware of it emerging, were, you, were your parents encouraging? Did they, did they say, you know, you've, you've got something here, we need to develop this in some way? I don't think any of us had a clue about professional music or what was required. We just didn't know. Yeah. And I think that... Uh, pertained until I was actually studying music with my music teacher in London because one wintry weekend my folks came down because they were uh, far from rich and they were subsidizing me, I think for about eight guineas a month for my rent at that time and my dad was finding it quite hard and they, they, they thought, well, is, where is this going? What, what sort of possibilities are there? So they came down from Yorkshire and talked to my teacher and said, what are the prospects? Well, nobody, nobody can answer that. Uh, she couldn't, certainly. She, she was encouraging, but it's, uh, it takes an awful lot more than a, a voice um, to produce a, a successful career. I, I can't get my head around the fact that you had a proper job you worked in a bank. And I, I think the supreme irony here was that banks were then thought of as um, pillars of respectability yes, and security. Yes, yes, true. My, how time changed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I was studying music in uh, Leeds, um, seriously. Uh, and when I wanted to leave school and do that, my father said to me, well, if you're going to do that, you've got to do it in a proper manner and take lessons from somebody who uh, has a reputation and knows what they're doing. Well, again, we, we, it was a completely new world to us. We didn't know anybody like that. Uh, and they certainly couldn't weigh up at that time how, how good I was. Um, they just didn't know. So the, the bank enabled me to earn a salary uh, and still have time and energy at, the weekends for lessons in Leeds. Mm. It mm. was just simple as that. Mm. I didn't look on it, on it as a career. Yes, and the, the, there was a performance in York Minster of Haydn's Nelson Mask. Right. What a piece that yeah. is. Um, that was 1954. You were given a small solo. 
alongside a professional soprano. And is it true that she was the one who said you should take, you might take this to the next stage? It was Ilse Voss, uh, in fond memory, and uh, she was doing the, the, the big soprano role. Uh, and she said, if you, if you decide to come to London, I think she put it that way. I don't think she advised me to take it up as a career. It was a bit of a difficult step to, for anybody to take. She said, here's the number of my teacher. Get in, get in touch with her. Which was, when you think of it, remarkably lucky. Because finding the right teacher is one of the principal difficulties and, and one of the most important steps one takes. Because you can you don't know who anybody is until you start with them. You mm. don't know whether they're going to suit you or you don't know what they're going to do to your voice and strange things do happen. So that was amazingly lucky. Who was that teacher? Uh, well, she was called Helena Izep. Some of you might remember that name. Her son Martin was yes. my accompanist your, yes. for many, many years. Yes. And uh, she had come with her husband from Vienna in 1938, he was an art historian, and she, they began a new life here, uh, along with many other illustrious intellectual people whom over the years I met uh, with, with great, uh, great memories of, of the, the kindness and the kind of influence they brought to musical life in London at a, at a very difficult time. But uh, what a legacy, and mm. what a what a again enormously good fortune to mm. uh, meet people like that and be encouraged by them. That move to London was um, one of those decisions which changes is life changing, and was yes. for you. Um, yes. Were your parents? I mean, you you actually moved bank, didn't you? You yes, moved to the bank. Branch. Bank, the good old Barclays Bank, Since, transferred me. Yes, gosh. they did. Um, and so I was w within a sort of safe environment in the in the in the staff hostel at first before I decided to leave, which they knew I was going to do, uh, and uh, branch out on my own. But my first steps in London were under the auspices of the bank, which helped my parents a bit. But uh, my mother always used to say I had a great stubbornness about me and a great willpower that. I suppose even as, as a small child, it was obvious, I thought of something and I would do it and, and would not be dissuaded, which is all very well, but you know, in a little <laughs> top that side, it's quite hard to deal with. Um, but of course, it's, it was necessary. Uh, I, I had to make a decision. My father moved about a bit. They were going further up to the north and, and I had to make up my own mind what, what I was going to do with this singing. So Ilza was a was a, a factor in that, uh, but it was a huge step to take. But nevertheless, something that I'd always wanted to do. There were two ensembles that helped were significant in shaping your development. One was the Glyndebourne Chorus, yes. where many luminaries started: um, Sarah Connolly, Thomas Allen, yes. Susan Bullock, yes. Philip Langbridge. I mean, the lineup is yes. extraordinary. A, truly a chorus of soloists. The other was the Ambrosian Singers, mm. which was a professional choir which um, is not unusual now, but it was very unusual then yes. with our tradition of great amateur choruses. Yes. I bet that was a learning it curve. Was a, it was a 
crack bunch of people, believe you me. <laughs> um, uh, and my fellow pupil with Helena Ezep, Heather Harper, was the person who uh, got me in there. Most of them were incredible sight readers. We used to go along to, say, Medieval Studios and, and pick up a score, which we'd seen for the first time, and do it on the live broadcast, which was hair-raising, absolutely hair-raising. I, I was not a crack sight reader, but I had a very good musical memory. Once I'd heard something, I could pick it up pretty sharpish, so I got through of that. <laughs> um, now, the following year, in '56. Uh, you won second prize in the Catalan Ferrier competition. Yep. Um, there's a great tradition of great second prize winners in that competition, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, my first reaction is, what were they thinking? Um, but, uh, you know, the, the many, many very, very good singers have, have won second prize in the competition. And, of course, it was, it was so prophetic since you came to be regarded as her natural successor, even though, as you said, and I agree, there is no real similarity between you at all. Um, you also had a bad accident that year, didn't you? Didn't you get hit yes. by a bus? Yes, I was hit by a bus. It still affects me. I still have a, a dicey back from going under a London bus. Gosh. So, um, uh, that, that particular competition, in a way, haunted me for the rest of my life because uh, Joan Cross and... Uh, Lord Harwood were on the adjudicating panel. Mm. And Joan Cross thought there was no question I should have won. Uh, but she had a, uh, an opponent in Lord Harwood. He thought somebody else should have won, which they did. Uh, and ever afterwards, <laughs> uh, ever afterwards, there's a, uh, there was a sort of feud between them because she'd spotted me and this other lady uh, uh, sort of disappeared from sight, and I don't think George ever, ever forgave me for, <laughs> for that. <laughs> well, I mean, it did the trick anyway. That competition sure. really sure. launched things. For many of us, the defining moment of your arrival was Elgar's Dream of Gerontius, with uh, and in that iconic recording with Sir John Barbaroli. Yes. Um, how did you come to his attention? Michael Kennedy was the then critic of the Daily Telegraph and uh, had heard me round and about in various uh, capacities. And when Kathleen died, of course, it was a great, great disappointment and shock to John because he had a whole lifetime of things that he wanted to do with her. And it was a great blow, great blow to him. And they were casting around for somebody to take over the Gerontius sessions because they were badly in need of somebody to do it. It was all set up. It was set up for her. Was it? Good Lord. I think so. I'm not sure about Good that. Good um, And Michael said, well, uh, hear this girl, which he did, and uh, decided that, that he, would, he would use me. I think um, we got on very well together. She was northern and I was northern, and he was used to that uh, uh, temperament and... Uh, personality, uh, and I think it was a bit of a comfort to him that he could, we could fit in with mm. each other mm. so easily. I think that was a great factor. Mm. Uh, and of course, we then forged our own extremely close relationship, both with him and with Evelyn. Uh, and 
that, that Michael's introduction was the start of my recording career, which was again the most extraordinary uh, slice of luck. One says in, in all the, the acting professions, in, in all the, the performing professions, how much luck uh, is required. And it's absolutely true. It has to be there somewhere. You have to be a lucky person to be in the right place at the right time and to be able to take advantage of an opportunity like that, of course. But the initial chance has to be there. And for me, uh, the chances did seem to be there. What were your memories of Glorious John? Because um, he made a profound impression on me in my early music to, to To be... Uh, accepted by a recording company to be actually doing a recording was, a, was a, a tremendous thing in somebody as young and relatively unknown as I was. Uh, and of course, by reputation, everybody I worked with was an enormous personality. So there was this sense of, of feeling very young and inexperienced and in awe and then being confronted by this little man. I say little because he was tiny, not little in any other way <laughs> whatsoever. But uh, he accepted me in the warmest possible way uh, without overshadowing what I was trying to do. He understood the kind of musician I was immediately. It was that kind of understanding and sympathy. And of course, uh, when you watched him, either on the concert platform with the Halley, which I worked, uh, uh, which I worked a lot with him in the early days, uh, to see his face, to see his, his own reaction to a great piece of music, the man was very difficult to describe. It went into his being in a particular way. He was not afraid to show how deeply emotional yes. he found everything in, he did. Indeed. He, he always made me think differently about the pieces really? he conducted. Yeah. Um, and particularly, I remember Bruckner, um, oh. who I'd always had real problems yes. with up until that point. And I saw him conduct the Ninth Symphony of the Proms. And it, it had a, 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 the way it breathed. Yeah. was somehow different. It right. had a, a flexibility and freedom. Um, yeah. But this emotionalism was always mm. was yeah. in there. The first of my choices today, Kenneth, um, and you can all blame me for these choices, because can you imagine trying to choose illustrations from this lady's discography? Um, it's, it's extraordinary. Um, El Garcia Pictures, which was the, um, the recording you the other recording you made in that early stage with Barbadolli and the LSO. Um, it sounds like it might have been written for you. It seems to sit so comfortably in your voice. Did it? Parts of it. Parts of it do not. Parts of it, the last song is very, very difficult to bring off. I'm not playing as a, as a cycle. Yeah. <laughs> there are. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, well, we'll hear the, the Sabbath morning at sea. All right. Um, which is the um, Elizabeth Barrett Browning poem. Um, and there are certain observations that I'm, I'm keen to make and hear your reaction okay. to, but let's hear it. Peace. 
line, when keep the saints with harp and song, and Elgar puts the violins in unison with the voice, and uh, Barbara Ollie, you can hear, absolutely relishing that moment. Yes. It's a very wide compass, and many singers chest for dramatic effect in the piece. You don't. You let the words carry the drama. I hope so. <laughs> this, this business of chesting, it's, it's, it's something that, is that something you were conscious not to do? Because I don't hear you do it. It was conscious that I couldn't do it. I didn't have it. I, just, I, I used to try and copy people that I heard have a real power down there, Clara Buttish-like, you know. Mm. Uh, wouldn't happen. My voice just seized up. I had to let it do what it wanted to do. And it didn't want to do that. So that was Absolutely. it. The words are clearly important to you. Could you have been an instrumentalist? That's a very difficult and interesting question. I've never been asked that one before. Could I have been an instrumentalist? No, I don't think so, because, because the words are of such paramount importance in a singer's uh, brief. We're the only people who have this two-pronged capacity to, to move people through sound and through the tremendous connection with human language. Nobody else has that. All the difficulties that come with it, I might add. Uh, but for me, to whom reading and books and the spoken word and the spoken expression are so important, I couldn't have chosen uh, a more suitable vehicle for a self-expression. You, you made a couple of big decisions as a singer, and one was not to allow yourself to be claimed by the opera world. Um, at the expense of your recital and concert work. Um, how early in your career did you see that as a decision that needed to be made? Well, uh, you were talking about the Glyndebourne Bourne Chorus. Uh, I would have been, I don't know, uh, 23 when I went into the Glyndebourne Chorus and saw and experienced the operatic uh, world for the first time. And I think because words were and are so important to me, allying the dramatic quality with, with the rest was second nature to me. But again, I, I talk about luck and good fortune, and, and I do really believe myself to be the most fortunate of people. To have the opportunity to again, add something to what I'd already experienced up at the North as a, as a, what they call an oratorio singer. In those days, you were either one or the other. And it's only relatively recently that, that the, all sides of the musical uh, repertoire have been accessible to one person. This, is, this has been a hard fight, and it isn't one even yet, because if you're engaged in an opera house with a, a, an iron-bound contract, uh, and you say, well, I've got to do so-and-so and so-and-so at a certain point of time, and I will need the time off there, they say, okay, that's fine. When the time comes and the producer realizes he's not going to have you there on the... Mm -hmm. uh, Rehearsing, not, I'm not talking about performance, I'm talking about maybe weeks of rehearsal beforehand. 
and puts his foot down and says, I'm sorry, I need that person, even though they might be waiting at the back of a room doing nothing all day. This is the, the maddening thing. <laughs> so an opera, a young opera singer, given the opportunity to explore this incredible world of, of concert platform and uh, leader and recording, uh, is stymied because they can't get the day off. And of course, people don't want to, to take that risk. Why should they if they're running a concert group or, or that you have an engagement with an orchestra? They, you can't run a career like that. And it still happens, to my great sorrow, that you can arrange something and it not happen on the day that something has been agreed. It's a terrible, terrible thing. And, and it stops singers from being actually all-round singers because you need all the experiences you can get. Each one feeds the other. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, one of the reasons why I was so adamant about not letting the, the opera world uh, commandeer my life because I couldn't exist as a musician without those other forms of music. Yes. Well, you mentioned Bach earlier and your annual pilgrimage in the St. Matthew Passion, That's right. the greatest choral work ever written by man, in my opinion, but uh, um, I suppose that's uh, open to, to question. Uh, was sacred to you in every sense. Did you ever miss a year of not doing that? I don't think so. I, I either did it uh, in its original form with Steinitz, that St. Bartholomew was in German, uh, or, and, did it at the Festival Hall with Bach Choir. So most years, I had the experience of doing it in the original language mm -hmm. and also the other kind of pilgrimage, which was quite different in the festival hall, to do it in English. And, and that was uh, an anchor of my, my season. Um, usually I managed to do one of each. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the fulfillment, I used to measure life by Palm Sunday at the festival hall or whenever Paul Steinitz put on, on the, the one in St. Bartholomew. Yes, I was, a year ago, I was sitting here performing this, and what has changed since, and yes, how I, has life changed? In your, your book, um, Full Circle, you, you, I quote, involvement with this piece forces me to ask questions of myself. What was my feeling last year compared with today? What have I learned about myself during these 12 months? How have I changed, if at all, have I developed as a musician? Did you always like the answers that came back? I can't remember like and dislike uh, of such a question. Mm. Uh, life just evolved in a certain way, and each experience that I, I had of a whole year of music making was individually satisfying in itself uh, in, in completely different ways. I think, I think the passion music is especially a pilgrimage for, for people. It's a landmark in, in, our, in our lives, um, like the seasons are, or take it, take it as you will. We, we all have these markers, don't we? Uh, important markers. Mm. And they're, they're, they're wonderful times, really, to reflect on, on what one's been, been doing and, and how things are going. We're going to hear a, um, a little bit of um, Ebb Ahmadiri which is one of the transcendent moments in the piece. Yes. Um, uh, and 
utterly timeless. I mean, yes. it's as modern today as it was when the ink was not yet dry on the page. Is there anything more challenging to sing than that? The way the harmony moves beneath the voice means that pitching, uh, I mean, it's so easily to be pulled yes. into the harmony. Yes. I, I always thought that instrumentalists taught me Bach. I used to listen very, very carefully to what was going on around and behind me. And the secret is to try and do what the instrumentalists do. Yes. Yes, it's it's. Um, can we talk a little bit about this tension between the written notes and those of heart and soul? Um, you've described. I mean, it's black magic, really, isn't it? You've described performing as being the middleman, in a sense, between the creative genius, the composer, right. right. and the audience, who yes. don't realise how important they are. Exactly. Of course, but, exactly. <laughs> um, this requires great humility, does it not? Don't know. From the artist's point of view, well, I think I think from the very beginning, I used to be terribly aware that one was in a servant capacity. You meet great conductors and great musicians of all kinds, um, and singers are part of the team, so to speak. Um, and in the concert world, not all that important. In the theatre, the 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 uh, emphasis is slightly different because everybody's waiting for the, the big top C's or whatever. Uh, personality is, is more important. But if you're in the concert world and certainly in the leader world, you are very definitely a vehicle like everybody else. And that, I think, is a salutary experience 
and very important that you are a cog in the wheel. It's wonderful when great artists can put the ego aside. Um, I've seen masterclasses, and I'm sure you have, where that simply doesn't happen, <laughs> and you learn more about the, the singer than you do about the, the students. Um, I believe, actually, I'm, I'm mentioning no names at this point in time, but I'm sure you've got someone in mind. Um, uh, I believe you featured in a Lottie Lehman masterclass. I did. I'd love yes. to have... Um, yeah. Do tell. That was fraught. I was talked, it? I talked to Elizabeth about it in, in the car. She remembers them. I, I'm amazed anybody does. Um, she did master classes for opera in between 1956 and 57, I think, uh, and uh, a leader class. And we used to go along to the Wigmore Hall in trepidation, wondering what had happened in the in the uh, former session. Usually it was the opera it was first in the day, and, and you, you heard stories of people rushing from the room in consternation. You know, she was formidable and uh, very, very, uh, very steeped in her style. And I actually had, I didn't have an argument with her. Of course I didn't have an argument with her. We were doing the Frauenliebundleben, uh, and she was of the school which uh, was taught to express a word or an emotion with an action, but the same action every time the phrase came up, the hand came up or the head went up, or, and, and she was trying to make me do this. And I thought, this, this is about, I tried, but I, I couldn't do it. I just could not do that. It seemed to me too regimented. And yeah. she couldn't understand why I couldn't do it. And I couldn't make her understand why I couldn't do it. We were at opposite ends of the pole there. Yes. She was the last of, a, of um, a generation which did that sort of thing. Yes. And maybe I was one of the very early ones that was had a different kind of freedom, thank God, yeah. uh, where acting on the stage came out of the uh, moment of, of how you felt at the time and what had you, you'd been told to do, how to express yourself physically, uh, it had to be an honest sort of thing, yeah. not something put on from the outside. Mm. And we differed. Yes. That's, I suppose, what I meant by the word humility, is that there has to be an honesty of response to... To the, uh, 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 the person I was thinking of, funnily enough, was Schwarzkopf. Oh, right, yes. Um, <laughs> Probably we all uh, were. I, I, I had to come out with it. It, it just, I couldn't hold it in anymore. No. Um, <laughs> because no name, no I, we've, we've all, uh, obviously the audience have as well, been yeah. to masterclasses. Um, uh, I have to say, she's also the only person I've ever seen appear at the Festival Hall um, picked out with a, a pink follow spot. And she did four last songs yes. at, with Barbaroni. Yeah. And I've never seen anyone have a follow spot in the concert hall before. But anyway, that's another... I think the audience would have enjoyed that sort of thing enormously. <laughs> I, I suppose what it's bringing me to is it's easy to be seduced by stardom, I suppose. Did your northern upbringing help keep you grounded? <laughs> My mother and father kept me grounded, believe you me. <laughs> it isn't the thing to uh, overpraise, let's say. Uh, I don't think I got enough of it. Uh, but uh, my people used to say to my mother, you must be very proud of your daughter. And she would say, 
uh, I'm proud of the fact that she has not changed by this. <laughs> I think she probably meant that uh, I hadn't got big-headed or I was still speaking to them or whatever. <laughs> yes. It was that sort of thing. Uh, and, of course, that was quite untrue. I was a completely different uh, article from the, what they thought I was. But, uh, you know, in, in a way, that's a very good thing because, again, you think about what are we here for? We're here for the music. We're here for this tension you were talking about, this middle place. That's where we belong. And you'd better remember it because it leaves one sane. Um, in 1957, you married Keith Shelley. Um, and we're all very sorry he couldn't be with, yes. with you tonight. Um, but he became your business manager. Yes. And I suppose the wonderful thing is that he was by your side. People forget. They think this profession is glamorous. Yes. But it's also very lonely if you're Absolutely. on the road yourself. Yes. That must have been a huge boon for you. Yes. And I think of the, the a handful of conductors uh, who, whose wives had the same, uh, perhaps, uh, position in life. I'm thinking about people like Judy McCarris or, or uh, Carlo Maria Giulini's wife, who had a real uh, role to play. And, uh, of course, we were talking in, in, the, in the car. Uh, Gerald, where is Gerald? I can't see where he is. Yeah. Well, about this about this very thing, uh, how Im important and valuable it is to have somebody removing all the nitty gritty of a business, running a business. A, a successful career is a business, no matter what kind of career it is, yeah. and you need somebody to take that responsibility of the running of that business, yes. uh, an international business, off your shoulders so that all you need to remember is, is the learning the music, mm -hmm. doing, doing your own job. So that, again, I, I mentioned the word fortune, good fortune and luck, that we were able to work together all, all those years. It was a remarkable partnership uh, and, and well-known in the profession. He was as well-known as I was uh, with uh, uh, administrative people and with, with you know, he used to guard me like a guard dog. And say, Gosh, your husband's really formidable. Yes, yes, he was. <laughs> How marvellous. To keep that control over your yes. career so that Absolutely. there was that balance between the disciplines that could be maintained. Um, I know how much you valued your recital work. I mean, the repertoire, the recital repertoire represents the most intimate kind of music making um, and also relationship with an audience. Um, and English and German song, of course, was, was there, but also a particular sensibility to French chanson. I'm wondering where that came from. Uh, interesting question. The, the language of any country affects the sound you make. Think of Australian singers, how, how, how very, you know, very bright and, and, and open that is. It makes very good singers, the way they place their language, as does Russian. Uh, th those are two very, very clear examples of language affecting the kind of sound. Mm. Uh, and uh, I suppose there's an English sound as well. That, that the difficulty and the trick is to make any language, including French, which is supposed to be difficult, sound right. But the French language seems to put put the sound in a in a brighter, I don't know. A French area of one's face. I don't know one that's <laughs> one singing, you know, in the, in the same position. But, but 
something about the French chanson and the, mm. the, the delicacy, the subtlety of French music. Um, it's a, a completely different flavor in a program. Uh, and I used to think that building a recital program was terribly interesting from that point of view. You started with the old masters, Schubert, and then did Schubert, and then did French, uh, and perhaps English at the end, which I usually did. I gave a complete mixture, like a dinner party menu. And the, the difference between the languages, even though they may not be uh, understood in detail, mm. they make a, a different course, so to speak. What fun planning! Yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, it's 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 an art, isn't it? It really is. Yes, an art. I think you have to know your audience. Yes, mm. I always think that the putting the sound forward in that some of the French vowels. Um, I mean, you look at Janet Baker's face and those wonderful cheekbones. You can see where the resonating chambers are there. Well, that's what my my Viennese teacher taught me. You see, the one the one precious thing, not not the one, but the the vital thing was where actually to sing. And if you ask singers, where do you sing? That's where they sing. And her teaching was that it was nothing of the kind. You didn't think about the throat. The throat works perfectly well on its own without any help from us. <laughs> but the actual lifting of, of, a, of a breath, taking a breath in uh, and using life force, uh, it doesn't doesn't happen there. That's not the way it happens. It happens further up somewhere in the head. And uh, I've always been so grateful for that original idea of placing. And I find when I teach that singers actually discover uh, an ease about that idea. It takes it right away from the equipment to a philosophical idea of lift. Do you teach much? I teach uh, within very strict boundaries indeed. Uh, in other words, I, I work with established singers on a role or a repertoire, uh, a program, um, which they're going to do. I don't teach the 18-year-olds um, technique. Mm. I think that it's not my gift to do that. What I, what I, what I love doing is uh, working on a score and uh, helping somebody who is already established to take in what I've got to give, uh, who are not worried about technique anymore. They're, they're, they're free of that. They're ready to start the final bit of the pyramid, the apex, which is the foundation stone of a marvelous technique and good health and all the rest of it. And as you go further and further up the pyramid, the top flight people, uh, what is demanded from a really first class talent is that step, which an awful lot of people don't seem to want to make of uh, discovering that what is needed at that point is a complete sacrifice of your personality, uh, that you are capable of, of taking this piece of music to the final degree that you are capable of. And that involves, I call it walking through a door. Uh, somebody can say, there's a magic door at the end of this, and it's very narrow. 
but you can go through it if you want. And this is how to do it. I teach them how to open the door and, and I show them what is possible. It's very exciting and uh, revelationary because they suddenly discover for themselves what um, uh, what, how can I describe it? Terribly difficult to describe what real interpretation is. This idea of being the middle man, the servant, to, to draw these two things, the words and the music together, and you were like a little sandwich in the middle, present something. And if you can walk through this door not minding, not caring how much of yourself, of your soul stuff, your, your being, you share, because the composer has given his lifeblood and the poet theirs, you in your turn have to do the same in order to share to a very small extent, a very humble extent, what they are trying to tell the public. And it's that magic, when that happens, that you get the great moments in music, mm. I think. Mm. We're going to hear a, a, a French orchestral song, uh, uh, Spectre de la Rose from Berlioz, Les Nuits d'été. Um, uh, I, you know, it's, as I say, it was so difficult to choose, uh, and I wanted to have some songs with piano. Um, but I'm seduced by the orchestra always, so um, you've, you've got to accept that, I'm afraid. Um, how is it listening to these things this evening? Oh, agony. <laughs> I can't say any other word. Well, here's a bit more agony yeah. for you. <laughs> plangency in the, the French that you, you get in your voice. It just seems so right. Um, and of course, that's a little piece of drama, isn't it? I mean, the way it's set up before yeah. the voice even enters. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You think, oh, yes. breath. breathtaking. Conductors, who did you revere? 
I mean, we've talked about Barbarolli, but who did, who did you... Almost like? all of them. <laughs> Almost all of them in different ways. Mm. The, the great conductors are... It, it's just a privilege to uh, work with great conductors because of the learning curve. You learn something. Um, and the really top flight conductors allow you to collaborate with them. They are willing to um, accept things, um, not too hidebound with tempi or something like that. Uh, and uh, people like um, Carlo Maria Giulini mm. uh, is a case in point where he ha has enough humility himself to sit you down and say, what can I do for you here? Very rare, that. Wow. Just to go through a score and be, yes. be actually asked what you want. Yes. Uh, and you remember, I remember him once asking me that at the festival, and I said, Maestro, I would like to be able to sing comfortably the dynamic marks that the composer has put in the score, which means accompanying <laughs> an instrument, which is the voice, which has words to sing. And this is our dilemma. It's our great privilege as well um, to have this two-pronged uh, method of expression. Uh, but the difficulty, of course, is, is because each note or series of notes is cut off by consonants. And somehow or other, you spend a lifetime trying to do uh, what the Italians do so marvelously in their very singable language, legato uh, lines. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is, in many, many cases, impossible these days. I, I, I despair, because I want to hear the words as well. So it takes a great, a great um, um, practitioner of the, of the stick, and of the control of the orchestra and the courage to say, look, chaps, this is accompanying, it's different from an ordinary piano, it's an accompanying piano. Very few people think in terms like that, that the, the, the actual technical difficulties of singing words produce for us the most uh, appalling difficulties. And somehow, well, Barbary was one, one, one of the rare ones. Those who do accompany a singer with this in mind, mm. that we have this special, special need, are rare birds. A conductor I was um, hugely impressed by when I was growing up, who died in the same week as Barbarolli, you worked with quite a bit, George Say, was known as a real tyrant. Was he as much of a monster? It was a monster, absolute monster. Yes, you gave one of uh, <laughs> he gave one of the most marvelous performances I've ever heard of the Beethoven Choral Symphony, with you and Heather Harper and Ronald Dowd and Franz Kratz. Yes. It was stupendous. Um, do you know the Previn story with, with George Say? Yes, tell, I do, but do tell it. Yeah, oh, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's it's just such a marvelous. Um, when Previn was a young jobbing musician in Hollywood. Um, his agent rang him and said, uh, Maestro Zell has lost his pianist. And the work in question was the Strauss Burlesque, which is not often performed even now. And Previn happened to know it. 
And he said, you must go along to the maestro's house. So he went along and uh, Zell welcomed me in and said, um, please, I would like you to, to, to play the opening of the piece. And so Previn looked around the room in search of a piano um, and saw none and said, well, maestro, are we going into your studio? And he said, no, 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 here, on the table, here. So um, Previn rather foolishly sat down and, and played the opening of the piece on the table. And um, he said, no, 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 too fast, too fast. <laughs> and, um, and Previn turned around and said, well, I'm awfully sorry, maestro, but the action of your coffee table is very different from the one that you have at home. And he didn't get the job. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful story? <laughs> lovely story. Does that ring in, oh, true in any way? absolutely. <laughs> he put you through the fires of hell and sort of tested you. You had to go through a series of tests. And if you, if you failed, you were out. Uh, well, a failure. I mean, we talk about failure. Um, <laughs> I, I went through a similar thing. Not, not the same thing, but a similar thing. Uh, and uh, came through somehow or other. After which, our relationship changed completely. He had to f somehow feel uh, that he could trust you in his own inimitable way. Uh, if you survived the ordeal, you, you began to uh, experience wonderful music. Yes, yes. it was a great... Big price to pay. Um, opera. Um, I mean, your work on the operatic stage was exclusive to the UK, really, where you divided your time between your spiritual homes, Alborough, Glyndebourne, the Royal Opera, and the English National Opera. Um, Scottish you, Opera. And Scottish Opera. You chose the roles very carefully, and I won't list them all, but both your Didos, Purcell and Berlioz, uh, Gluck's Orfeo, Eurydice, uh, Cavalli's La Callisto, Monteverdi's Coronation of Pompeia, Handel's Julius Caesar, and Donizetti's Mary Stewart, which is when I saw you on stage for the first time, right. conducted by Charles McCarris at English National Opera. And you know, having seen you so much as a concert performer and your composure on the platform, I was taken, about, uh, taken aback at how physically abandoned you were on stage. Um, the added dimension of using your body seemed to free you in an extraordinary way. Is that something Absolutely you true, yes. If you're in a good production, that is, and you're allowed to express, uh, to do as you're told, but also allowed to express what you're feeling through, through the actions. Uh, I, I always think uh, of Peter Hall having passed through his hands at Glyndebourne, uh, who would allow you tremendous freedom uh, to rely on the body to produce the right gesture in the right way if it was coming from here and here. Mm. The heart and the head joined together and uh, to be true to what the music was trying to express. If those things came together, you didn't have to act at all because it was a completely natural fulfillment of what, what was required from everything going on around you. Mm. Uh, and that kind of naturalness uh, suited me down to the ground. Mm. Uh, to have the freedom and, and to, to let the body share in the experience, because on the concert platform, you can't do that. You can't be as abandoned, it's just different. So the expression is, um, narrowed down to 
uh, another area. But I still think, even, even in singing Bach, as a singer, your body, your instrument is your body, and therefore it is sharing in the experience, uh, regardless of what you think about it. And the more one uh, allows that to happen naturally, because to, you, you're, a, you're a complete lunatic. You know, you're not you're not a voice. You're a, you're a person and a body. And of course, the body is a very vital part of that. Did you enjoy the process of getting there, the rehearsal room process? One of the things I really and truly miss, the walking into a, a rehearsal room for the first rehearsals, listening to what the producer's ideas are and the shapes that he wants and, and the general uh, idea of the, the, of the conductor, um, building up something from that, working with colleagues and, and building up something. I think, I think a film crew uh, says something about this, how deeply embedded and involved you get when you're working in a small team very, very concentratedly uh, and producing something one hopes magically mm. at the end of it mm. um, uh, is a, a very binding experience, bonding experience that you never forget. And, and uh, even though you may not meet the same people again, some sort of residue is, is left. I've chosen a bit of... Um saber-rattling of Julius Caesar. Oh, right. um, I um, saw you as well in, in that role of the English National Opera, and um, my goodness, you shifted on stage. <laughs> Did I? <laughs> there were some storming moments. Yeah. Um, this, this aria, Sea in Spate for High Cataract Storming, oh, yeah, my goodness. Um, essentially, that means he's cross, I think. Yes. Into, um, I think and, and cross in Handel means ferociously challenging run. Yes, yes. And very physical as well. Big heavy Absolutely. Um, well, I think this is, excuse my inelegant interpretation of the piece, I, I think this is an, a hell of a piece of singing. <laughs> <laughs> something very funny about this. Um, uh, Charlie McCarris, whom I adored, uh, had the most aggravating habit of changing um, uh, ornamentation yeah. right at the last minute. Yeah. And uh, I was privileged to uh, 
give a, a eulogy at his memorial service in St. Martin in the Fields. And I mentioned that fact, uh, that th this horrendous moment when his face would come around the, the, the door. Say, well, I've, I've, just, I've just got a, a, a few little alterations, you know, when you're just about to go on and say the night before or whatever, these are, Charlie, go away, I can't take any Time after time, he would come with his, he'd had a better idea during the night that he thought we should incorporate. And most of the time, we did. Uh, Gray-haired, although we may have been. And I, I mentioned this that morning in, in the church, and I could feel this ripple of, of uh, 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 unity in the, in the audience that all the singers who'd yes. gone through this experience. Yes. It was horrendous, because, of course, you have to get them sung into the voice. Never mind, remember them. Yes. But he, he was so enthusiastic, and, and you had to try your best to do it. But we, we could have... We could have strangled him at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible. You, you mentioned the physicality of it. It is so physical just listening to it. Yeah. Um, and Nerves of Steel doesn't begin to describe what it takes mm. to sing something like that. Um, and to control the aspirates and things like that. Where I, yes. I mean, there are singers, again, one won't mention, um, who sound like Akat guns. You know, with, oh, right. You know, sort of... Oh, Everything right. from the diaphragm, all the passage work from the diaphragm. We'll talk about that later, mm. I think. <laughs> um, what is a diaphragm? <laughs> <laughs> um, in this, his 100th uh, anniversary year, we must talk about your very close and long association with Benjamin Britten. Yes. Um, a man, such a mass of contradictions in many respects, um, private, inhibited man, and yet one who courted the establishment to some extent. Um, how do you remember him? Oh, golly. With huge affection and uh, a sense of tremendous debt, because I was talking about the people who came out of Austria uh, before the 1939 and who brought with them to this country and others, but to this country very much, a nucleus of... of uh, experience and knowledge and standards, which I think affected certainly my generation of, of uh, students tremendously. And at the time, Britain was not one of these, but certainly part of the same influence on us all. The fact that here was a British composer who I recognized from people that I'd got to know through my teacher, uh, of, of searching for the same kind of excellence, which, um, with the greatest respect, this country was not all that much concerned with. I don't know whether you would say that was an unfair statement. Um, but the, the quality which they demanded and gave, and Britain, as a an, Engli an Englishman, uh, was the first English person that I had met with the same kind of drive towards standards which were truly international. Mm. And the debt I owed him as a student was to come across this man and be dragged up by the scruff of the neck uh, into something which um, I had not met before, uh, to work closely with him 
was a complete revelation. And the kind of standards that he uh, extracted from us, of the greatest possible kindness, uh, were truly international. So that when one went abroad and you, or you worked with singers of, of international repute, uh, nothing to do with the British culture at all, you felt at home because you were always after the same thing and you knew how to get it. And that was the most invaluable mm. gift to me as a mm. student. Uh, he wrote two roles expressly for you, Kate in his TV opera, Owen Wingrave, and a really great gift, an absolute masterpiece, um, his last vocal work to words um, from Robert Lowell's verse translation yeah. of the Racine play Phoebe. Um, uh, there's an entire drama here in 15 mm -hmm. minutes. Mm -hmm. And I have a very distinguished composer friend um, who said he would happily throw out all his compositions if he wrote one piece as good as this. Gosh, um, uh, the theme of forbidden love was something which really plainly ch chimed with Britain yeah. um, and was central to this piece. I mean, I, I want to ask about the moment the score arrived because you will have known that he was writing it. Yes. How much collaboration was there in the process? None, None in the writing. He heard me uh, uh, sing the uh, performance of Les Nuits d'été at the uh, summer before he embarked on this um, in the Maltings at Aubra. And he came round and afterwards and said, I would like to write a piece for you like that. Uh, he knew me, he knew my voice very intimately, and to be uh, confronted by this statement, everybody, everybody asked him to write things for them, you see, naturally. Or, or everybody wanted a piece written by him. I had never, ever, ever presumed or dared to <laughs> let such a thought cross my mind. Mm -hmm. So it was a wonderful moment. And I think, I think, he must have uh, been inspired by the Berlioz piece, and, and he heard me singing something, which perhaps the style of which, the scale of which, he hadn't really realized before. Mm. I don't think he'd ever been to a recital that I I wonder if he'd heard the death of Cleopatra, the Berlioz piece. I wonder. Because that has, that yes, chimes with his yes, piece. Yes, it does. Well. It's very much so in, in, yes. uh, in, attitude, uh, in drama as well. So I don't know. I don't know what was behind it, but it just felt, you know, this is in incredible. Um, and when it came, there, there was this Shena, like a miniature opera, and this woman with all this passion and all the sides of character. Uh, what, what, is, what is on one page of that score? What she expresses on one page of, of, the, of the sides of her personality as a human being is beyond description. And there was this page and pages after uh, of gift to a, a dramatic singer, which was right up my street. But he, you see, he knew me very well and had heard me do something which sparked this off. So it was, it was a wonderful present, a wonderful gift at the end of his life that, that he, he should have thought of me in that way. I, 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 I am so deeply touched. And we're eternally grateful mm. for it. It's, we're going to hear the final pages as Phaedra uh, regally prepares for death, uttering the immortal words, death to the unhappy is no catastrophe. Yes, indeed. Mm. 
don't you? Huh? Um, that's the best we could do to, today. Um, Janet, knowing when to stop, to retire, is a very personal decision for any artist. And you did it in two stages. Um, how difficult or easy was it to arrive at that decision? I've always been a, a person of instinct. I obey my instinct. Um, they don't, I hope, uh, lead me far wrong. Certainly in that case, although it, it came as a shock and I have often been berated for it since, I still believe that I did the right thing for me. Uh, it's, and I chose to stop uh, opera seven years before I finished everything else because it was the most physically draining uh, I, and I, I, I think I was saying to, to uh, Gerald in the car that uh, people are born with a certain amount of stamina. Uh, some of us are, um, they have a lot of stamina from be the beginning to the end of their lives and they can do things which other people can't. Uh, I felt the opera stage and what I, I gave of myself on the operatic stage was becoming... I was thinking about it, and, and I had never done that. I had never thought about technique. I let it flow. I thought, I, I, know, I know the voice will work. Leave it alone. And same with my, my, my very, very um, uh, busy career. I had no problems because I sort of rationed myself. But as you grow older, the body um, makes its own demands on you, and you, you know perfectly well that certain things you can do, certain things you can't do as well. I did not want to start and f fade into oblivion and uh, uh, diminish as a musician. A lot of people feel very differently with absolute right. I think it, it is a personal decision, as you say, and it's absolutely right for those who want to, to go on. I did not feel that. I, I felt that, A, I wanted to do seven more years of, of doing repertoire that was really very close to my heart. Uh, and by that time, I was uh, 56. I just think it was a right, a right choice for me to make. Um, I felt it was right mm. to do. And that's all I can say. Mm. It, is it true that it was only comparatively late in your career you actually began enjoying that? I mean, I've, I've yeah. read that somewhere. That's is, that, true. is that true? It is true. It Gosh. is because all my life I had the most awful, awful struggle with nerves. Um, you know, to wake up in the morning and, and feel free that you don't have to go on stage or on a platform that night it was a different day completely because uh, in some unfortunate people, it is very, very powerful influence in one's life. Other people seem to uh, not suffer from word, not, not suffer. We all do that. But sometimes the, the strain on oneself is, is, is very, very great. Uh, and th this, this was uh, also a thing that was taking a toll on me. And I didn't want to have to start and think in three quarters of a, of a way through a, through a recital, whether I was going to get to the end of it or whether I could do this pianissimo anymore, things began to impinge 
that had never done before. They were done clear and clean, and I never thought about them. They happened, and it worked. Once, once age creeps up on you, and, and I think singers are very much like ballet dancers in this, uh, in this uh, essence, that you're, you're, us you're using your body as an instrument. And it all depends how much strength and how much stamina you're born with as to how you're going to cope with this and all the stresses of life itself. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to go out with people saying, you should have heard her five years ago. Mm -hmm. I still think that's right for some people. I'm not judging anybody for doing that. If they feel they have, uh, they want to, to, to express themselves musically, they have every right to do so. And, and they're much beloved all, all their working lives, but I just didn't feel that way. Yes. You chose Glyndebourne for your operatic farewell, and you chose what had become very much your signature role, Gluck's Lefeori and Eurydice. Um, uh, why did you make that choice? Was it just coincidental that it the production coincidental. happened to be? Yeah. Uh, the, I had said to, to my agent uh, in the summer before I did it, uh, in 1989, the, the final one anyway, the, the final operatic year, uh, uh, I gave them notice that I wasn't going to sing opera. And then I gave notice that I was going to finish altogether. But I didn't want anybody to know. Everybody did know about the opera. And it makes it very difficult. I knew when I was um, uh, going to leave altogether that I, I just couldn't stand the strain of, of saying, maybe facing my Carnegie Hall audience, which I did every year. Them knowing I was going to finish and me knowing I was going to finish would have put an absolutely unbearable strain on both of us. They would be, I would never have got through it. So I, I, I said, don't tell anybody that this is going to happen. It's the only way I'll get through this year. That's how it happened. Nobody did know. I, it was amazing. Yeah. So I spared myself that, that agony. I believe the chorus um, on the last night presented you with Orfeo's lyre. Yes. Um, a lovely idea. It yes. had protected you in the underworld yes. and would hopefully protect you That's through right. the remainder yes. of your journey. Isn't that marvellous? It was marvellous um, moment. Well, we're going to hear the hit number, I suppose, <laughs> from, from that piece. Um, wow. It needs no introduction.
your recorded legacy is enormous, and um, we're eternally grateful for it. Um, recordings are snapshots of work at a particular time in one's life, and I, I, I wonder what your relationship has been with recording. Have you, you, you've always accepted that they were just that, or whether... I used to think so. I used to think of it as a completely separate area of my life. Uh, and I don't know actually how I fitted it all in with what I was doing. I, I, I seemed to work non-stop for 33 years. But uh, I always felt it wasn't quite in the same area of importance as live performance. I have since changed my mind because recording is is important to people. It's important to people who can't afford to go to concerts, can't journey towards things. They're, they are snapshots, but they're like looking at, at memories of a wonderful holiday or your family. They're part of your life and, and a very, very important mm. uh, part of one's life, the, these memories. But uh, the interesting thing is that performance has these moments of magic. And you would think that that can only happen in a live performance, in a live theater or concert room with living people in it. This was always my contention, that it was uh, a moment that you couldn't recapture and that something captured on, on, a, on, a, on a recording couldn't have the same value. Mm. But I have changed my mind because um, I think magic could and did and does happen in the recording studio. A, because you are relieved of the uh, stress of uh, a live performance. Um, the audience isn't there, but you know they're going to listen to it. They're not there, but they, are, are, they give you a freedom, in a sense, that isn't there. You haven't got the freedom to record things over and over again, but you can repair, you can attempt to uh, clarify and improve to a certain extent. Uh, but I used to find that most of my takes were long takes that were tinkered with very little, mm. which I liked. Mm. Um, and I also think listening to certainly other people's records, the one I, I quoted the uh, beginning of the, of the evening about Margaret Price and Jeffrey, mm. that was coming over my car radio, and I was absolutely captivated by what I was listening to. And if that isn't magic, I don't yes. know what is. Yes. So it is important. Yes, and sometimes they are connected to live performances. I mean, one of my yes. flashbacks earlier in the evening was of those performances in the early 70s of Mahler's Second Symphony with Leonard Bernstein yes. and the LSO. Um, and um, the I remember sitting there listening to the Ulicht, the penultimate movement of the piece, which is expresses longing for release from earthly woes. And I, do you remember how slowly Bernstein oh, yes. took it? <laughs> I do. That and I remember very that. consciously <laughs> thinking, how many breaths will she need for the final cadence of the piece, this rising cadence? And I have it at home now, and I remind myself time and again, one breath. Gosh, one really? breath. I'd forgotten that. And I've heard singers take as many as three breaths over that phrase. So 
Um, there you are. It, the living proof is there. In the <laughs> but I bet those, I mean, I went to the Usher Hall performance of the Marleteer and it was one of those searing events in one's life that you just never forget. And it was recorded in Ely Cathedral, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, a, a television recording. A television recording as well. Goodness me. Well, back to Marla again and um, the climax of our evening. Um, your two recordings with Barbaroli of Mahler's Rückertlieder, um, to me, show a deepening of response to the piece over the years, and the second recording with the Philharmonia Orchestra, and particularly the song Ich bin der Welt abhanden gekommen, I'm lost to the world, um, is really transcendental, and to me, one of the greatest leader recordings ever made. There, I've said it. Um, and I've said it many times before, because the rarefied atmosphere that you and Barbaroli achieve in that song goes way beyond mere performance. I mean, the magic clearly descended. I mean, what are your memories of that, or don't you remember? You must have been so in the moment. Just, just I suppose, a fortunate chance of moments coming together. I used to watch his face, you see, his face was an absolute study when, when he, was, he was transformed by, by what he was listening to. And to be able to watch a human being go through that, he probably didn't have any idea what he looked like, but he, right in front of you, at a, at a distance of 10 feet, the experience of a human being uh, not hiding any kind of, of emotion is a, is a very great privilege and a very rare thing. Uh, and I think it was, it was the inspiration of his face that made that. Um, there's a line in the poem which speaks of being at peace in a still land, und ruhen einem stillen Gebiet. And you replicate that stillness by draining all the color and vibrato from your voice. Um, in an extraordinary way, and it has been much imitated, I have to say, over the years. I've, I've heard so many people sort of think, oh, that's a good idea. Um, Isn't it but, in the score? Um, sorry? Isn't it in the score? Um, Written into the score? It w might well be. Mm. It might. I was going to ask you, what, was remember. that just simply an idea of this, this moment requires? I wouldn't have thought so. It's, it's, it's otherworldly. And when we listen to it, ladies and gentlemen, I, I really listen very carefully. You will not mistake the moment. It is quite extraordinary. Um, and, well, it just, it just. It's Marla. It goes, it's Marla. It goes somewhere we don't expect to go. Um, and I suppose this song also, for all creative people, all performers, it chimes with them because it's about the loneliness of creativity. Being alone with your art in yes. this song. Yes. Um, that's it. That's
Um, in your book, Full Circle, you write, we are all soon forgotten. Five minutes after I leave the platform for the last time, I shall be forgotten. Hasn't quite worked out that way, has it? Um, Dame Janet Baker, thank you for all you've given us. <laughs>